Irish Nation. The Irish, unfortunately, dropped their week one game to the Ohio State Buckeyes, 21-10. Kept it close for a long time. I, unfortunately, was not able to go. I actually had secured a situation where I had tickets and an Airbnb. So if I had chosen to go on, I would have actually had a pretty good situation. But uh, unfortunately, I had some other stuff pop up and I couldn't go. Brett, however, was there in person, had the whole game day experience. So, Brett, how about you tell me, how about you tell our listeners what your experience was like there in Columbus? Yeah, it was an awesome college football atmosphere. Um, you know, I've now been to the big house in Ann Arbor and Athens for the Notre Dame UGA game in 2019. And this was easily the loudest stadium I've ever seen. Um, it was definitely louder than the big house wire to wire. Athens was probably more consistently loud, um, especially in the middle of the game. I mean, Notre Dame really took the Ohio State crowd out of this game. So, you know, second, third quarter, not that intimidating of an environment, but pre-kickoff, it was hard to hear the person sitting next to me. Fourth quarter, I mean, it was just 106,000 people on their feet for the entire fourth quarter, nonstop, high energy, really loved the game. I'll, I'll take a couple of pot shots at Ohio State fans. I'd say 99% of them were great people, had a couple of incidences that frankly just left a bad taste in my mouth. But in general, thought the people was great. The atmosphere was great. Although their band didn't let our band bring like half of our members. So we weren't able to march as a band, which was a really weird flex in a college football game. So I hope Notre Dame remembers that when, when we host Ohio State uh, next year to, to cut their band in half and, and see how they like it. Uh, but that's getting a little petty. And then the last thing is huge shout out to the Hemmert family for hosting a great tailgate. And the Smith family, some some of my in-laws' in-laws, um, they brought in bad wands from Elsa's in Dayton, Ohio. If you've ever been to Dayton, Ohio, or if you haven't been, check this place out. It's a hidden gem, awesome restaurant. Um, but with that, that, that's probably enough on my game day experience. Um, let's get to the show. Yeah, definitely. It looked like an unreal environment. I, I wish I had been there. I was, obviously, I was in Athens uh, a few years ago for that game when Notre, Notre Dame played Georgia, and that was great. And hearing that it's potentially even better than that at its peak, that to me that says it all. And any fan base sounds like you had a couple bad experiences. By and large, most fan bases, ninety nine percent of the people are going to be good fans, good people. But every even Notre Dame, every fan base is going to have their share of those those people who will just just give the fan base a bad name. For sure, and definitely didn't ruin the weekend. But by any stretch, I mean I know we came up on the losing end, but thought it was. One of the better college football weekends I've ever had, just in terms of environment and tailgating. Um, heck, afterwards, we were walking back to our Airbnb, and there was a frat party going on, and, and they pulled us in to do keg stands with them. So, like, by and large, had a great weekend, great experience, and, you know, really walked away thinking, bummer we lost, but college football is awesome. Man, dude, you're giving me FOMO. I I just kept seeing images from that. Now I'm hearing you talk about it, and I just keep thinking, uh, even though we lost, that would have been so much fun to go. I'll have to. I'll, I think next year I'll definitely have to go to our big games, make up for this year. Now, anyways, moving on to the show. So we got two segments today. We're not going to mess around. We're going to keep it a little more concise. Great football game to cover. So Ohio State recap. That'll be the majority of the show. We're going to do a quick preview on Marshall next week in the home opener. So, and in that, we're looking for Freeman's first career win as a head coach. And then next week, we'll get back to our more usual cadence of covering a topic or a deep dive on some football analytics. We're going to punt on that this week, but then next week, we're going to bring it back. We didn't accomplish the goal that we had, right? The goal was to win, and uh, we didn't do that. And as I said, after the game, there's no moral victories around here. You know, the expectation for us in this football program is to win every game we play, including um, playing the number two team in the country. Um but, man, I'm proud of the way we prepared. I'm proud of how the coaches had our guys prepared. I'm proud of the way the kids played. Um, they played hard. All right, kicking off the Ohio State recap, Notre Dame loses by 11, covers the spread, uh, which both Mike and I predicted, although we didn't think it would be quite this low score in the game. And really a game where Notre Dame played some tough, gritty football on the biggest stage. Controlled the game for really three quarters. Had a lead until, I think, 17 seconds left at the end of the third. And that's a big step change from other marquee games in recent memory, thinking of the Alabama games and the Clemson Cotton Bowl and you know some other primetime games where ND just didn't show up. ND showed up in this game. 
So, Mike, let, let's just start with some high-level takeaways. What what stood out with you um, kind of overall in this game, and then we can dive into some defense and offense? Yeah, I think you hit on a key one. This was a tough environment. This was this was the game for week one. ton of hype coming in. As you mentioned in our intro, just the atmosphere was extremely loud and intimidating. It's the type of situation where you get a little nervous if your team's not ready. If your team's not ready, they could easily cave. We showed up ready. Our defense looked really good. We clearly frustrated Ohio State's offense, who we talked about this in a prior show. This is an offense that some people were hyping up as potentially the greatest offense of all time. Before we had even seen them, they obviously had a lot of pieces coming back, a lot of talent. We were able to keep that that offense largely in check most of the game. So I, I was surprised, not surprised. I was I was pleased with how how we came out ready. We weren't intimidated. We frustrated Ohio State quite a bit. And then at least in the first half, we put enough points on the board to feasibly put ourselves in a position to win. It's only two games, but this is the second game in a row where we haven't been able to finish. Obviously, obviously it's tough to finish a game when you're playing a team as talented as Ohio State. With that level of talent, with that level of just stars across the board, you're not going to be able to completely hold them down the entire game. And, and near the end of the game, they started to they started to show their talent level. CJ Shroud just, yeah, there was just a few, there were a few plays where we did everything right. We had him rolling out to the left. I remember one play in particular on third down. There was very little space, a very little window for him to complete a pass, and he just threw a perfect pass. Plays like that, all you can do is just shrug your shoulders and tip your hat to him, and that's why he's he's a Heisman finalist. There were even a few plays, too, just watching it from the crowd where he was clearly starting on one side of the field, and you saw something open up on the other, and you're like, oh, please don't get to your third read. Please don't get to your fourth read. Every time he got to his third and fourth read, and he, he found the open guy. So, you know, one of the things that I think stood out to me was, Outside of going up against C.J. Stroud, our defense looked elite. Um, you know, we can nitpick on a couple things like, like the pass rush. The other side of that, though, is the offense. You know, if, if you go back to our roster preview shows, wide receiver was probably our biggest question mark on either side of the ball, and, and those questions got a lot bigger. And, and we, we can double-click on that in a bit. But, you know, defense, definitely elite. C.J. Stroud got the job done when it counted but hard to be anything but wildly impressed with our defense. Offense, I think, is where we're going to spend some more time talking through, okay, how do we improve from here and how do we improve quickly? Um, Because there's some pretty glaring issues out wide that I'm not sure we've got answers for in the locker room right now. Agree. I think that's my takeaway. I think the defense, we thought they would be good. It looks like they're at a minimum good. I was Our expectations coming into this were hopefully we could have a top 10 defense. I think after watching this game, I feel like I feel better about that. Then on the flip side, these glaring weaknesses that we were nervous about on offense, they pretty much, that pretty much turned out to be the case here. As you mentioned, Brett, our wide receivers, the very limited depth there, we weren't really able to get a whole lot of production out of the receivers this game outside of a couple plays. And that was pretty much it. And then and then I would say our offensive line certainly looked worse. And we're, we're going to go into this in a, in a little bit more detail later. But I would say our offensive line also looked worse than I would have expected. Granted, Jarrett Patterson was out, and I think that that had some impact there. So there's, there's room to, to believe it could get better. But I would say defense looked better. Offense, I guess you could say, probably looked a little worse for me. And I guess overall, I guess overall my takeaway, playing an elite team like Ohio State close like that, I would say generally I feel, I would say generally I feel better about where the team's at. I feel better about our floor. I think with the offense, potentially a little bit weaker than expected, it seems like it might be a little more difficult to kind of hit some of the more optimistic scenarios uh, for the season. I think the other topic before we got d- dive deep on defense and offense in this game is just Marcus Freeman as a head coach. I think that's a really big theme this year as a first-year head coach, um, young head coach, how is he going to be on the biggest stage? And I I can't give him an A or A plus because of a couple specific things, but overall, B plus, A minus. Um, we had no turnovers. We only had five penalties. Two of those were a defensive pass interference on the first scoring drive and an offensive pass interference uh, late in the game that definitely hurt. But th- those happen. Those aren't like mental miscues. So not a lot of pre-snap penalties. Really no dumb mistakes. I think we had one personal foul that looked a little questionable, but I I honestly didn't go back and watch the replay. So a really clean game. In fact, we had, I think, about 30 fewer penalty yards than than Ohio State did. Um, 
And so that was really clean. The the one part that really bugged me was we burned two timeouts in the second half. Um, Notre Dame fans have always been on Brian Kelly for poor timeout management in a way that I think if you move past the Tulsa game in his like first season just was unwarranted. Brian Kelly would burn first half timeouts, but first half timeouts aren't super valuable. Second half timeouts are super, super valuable. And we burned one on a second and 11. Um, we burned another one on a first and 10 coming up to start a drive off of a kickoff. Totally unacceptable. Uh, just flat out unacceptable clock management. And I don't know if it helps or not, but man, I really wish we had those two timeouts when they were running in, you know, seven and a half minute drive to ice the game to try to slow them down, get them out of rhythm, give our defense a rep. I would have loved to have it, you know, on the last game when they effectively, uh, on the last drive when they effectively melted out the clock and, and we didn't have those two timeouts. Um, that's going to happen with a first year coach. And I think we need to just know that, but that was, it's just got to get cleaned up and it's got to get cleaned up quickly. Cause if, if you're losing on the road in a big game, you just can't be making silly, very preventable mistakes like timeout management. Yeah. I think as far as first year head coaching decisions go, I, I thought generally it, it was good. Like you said, we played a clean game. We didn't have any turnovers that that's big. And penalties didn't kill us. But there were a few specific instances we can point to. You pointed out one. Another one for me, and this one didn't really even actually impact anything. But but it could have, was at the end of the first half, we had very bad clock management. We we took a deep shot down the field. We essentially, the clock for the first half was pretty much over. And we gave Ohio State potentially another opportunity to to do something if they wanted to. Nothing ended up happening, so it was totally fine. But you could imagine a scenario where if Ohio State had been able to hit a deep throw or something right after we gave it back to them with 20 seconds left on the clock, people would have been uh, pointing that out quite a bit. But overall, I think you came out well at the start of the game, played a clean game. I think that's pretty much all you can ask for for a first-time head coach. There's a few things to clean up, and I think he'll continue to improve. But there wasn't anything glaring where I have red flags and I'm thinking, oh, no, this is a guy who's in over his head. I didn't get any of that at all. He seemed like he was prepared for the moment. I'm curious, Mike, from watching it on TV. So Pete Sampson at The Athletic, who I usually really enjoy but maybe disagree with on this one, thought that the play calling was conservative. He referenced, you know, Tom Reese quote about, you know, making our offensive game plan about keeping their offense off the field, which is, you know, sort of conceding a talent gap or conceding that, you know, we're underdogs or whatever. And I always felt that Brian Kelly against Alabama or Georgia got real conservative on offense um, and, you know, wouldn't take shots, wouldn't take risks, kind of wouldn't run the whole playbook to just kind of hang in there. I, from watching the game in the crowd, I didn't have that perspective. I'm curious, on either offense or defense, did you notice anything in play calling that, that you thought was good or bad in kind of Freeman's game plan going into the game? I think... What Samson said, having watched the game on TV, I think maybe what he said, I think he was overstating it a little bit. We certainly had a more conservative game plan where we were trying to control the clock, trying to limit their possessions, but Samson kind of made it sound like we weren't really trying anything aggressive at all. And that, that was not really my impression at all. We certainly were trying to establish a run game, but there were plenty of situations where we would take shots. I mean, I remember at, at the second half, Buckner... And he actually hit a guy wide open. We had a play where, I can't remember which down it was, but we had a guy wide open downfield, and Buckner just essentially missed him. So we definitely took shots, maybe not every play, but Samson kind of made it sound like we were kind of doing the Mike Bray burn offense. And we were we definitely were doing that to some extent. But I, I thought he was perhaps exaggerating it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, a couple things, too, to just build on that. We took... Two or three deep shots to Matt Salerno. We took a deep shot to Braden Lindsay. Um, Styles obviously had the big hitter to, to start the game, which I get wasn't necessarily a deep shot. He broke a tackle, made a guy miss, and you know took off for 54 yards. But we were aggressive in those situations. Even in the second half when things weren't working, we started off a drive with a misdirection jet sweep. Um, and the other part is they pinned us quite a bit, both punting the ball and our kick return game. Freeman went off about the kick return game in, in, in the post game, which is not great. And so we had a lot of situations where we started off backed up and on third and 10 or third and six or third and 15, are you really going to have your rookie quarterback go out there and grip and rip it when he's backed up? So 
I actually thought we did a great job of largely avoiding three and outs. We just couldn't get past the first first down. Um, you know, pretty good situational football, but I thought we kept taking shots and they didn't work. And, and we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a little bit as, as we mentioned. But the other one that stood out to me that I saw a lot of people griping about was their touchdown to go ahead. So playing that back, it was first and 10 in the red zone. They took a penalty. It was second and 21. They got 10 yards back on the next play. So it's third and 11. They're solidly in field goal range down by four. If they go and get five plus yards on that play and it's fourth and short, you got to feel like Ryan Day is going for it. Um, rather than, you know, trying to cut the lead to one, you got to feel like that's two down territory. And we brought a pretty weird delayed blitz that just absolutely didn't work. So just full stop the play that we drew up on defense was a delayed blitz. We bought, brought, I think six or seven rushers. We left every other guy in coverage in one on one and the blitz 100% did not get home. And Tariq Bracey had just come out of the game for a breather. True freshman Jaden Mickey is one-on-one in coverage against Xavier Johnson. He gets absolutely burned, and they score a touchdown. And I saw a lot of people upset about, like, why in that situation are you blitzing? Well, you can't say it's a conservative game plan on the one end, but then be upset that we're blitzing on third and long. And by the way, third and long is typically a blitzing down, right? That's when you want to get after the quarterback. Um, so biggest play of the game. CJ Stroud found the open guy. He was wide open and the blitz didn't work. So I think it's revisionist history. But if you said it's third and long and they're in the red zone and Freeman's thrown the kitchen sink at them and trying to dial up a blitz, I mean, yeah, we got beat, but I, I like the aggressiveness there. If you get a sack on that play or, you know, any disruption, um, and you force them into a field goal to keep the lead going into the fourth quarter with the ball back, I'm okay taking a gamble there, especially knowing the offense wasn't doing much in the third quarter. So I know it didn't work out, but I even think in that situation, probably the one play getting the most like critical view, revisionist history can say, wow, bad play. But I don't know before then, if you said third and long, most pivotal moment in the game and Freeman's down up a blitz, I think most people are thinking like, thank goodness he's staying aggressive. Um, so I thought overall Freeman called a, Good Freeman had a good game plan going in, and both Al Golden and Tom Reese on both sides of the ball called a decently aggressive game in a really tough road environment. Yeah, I think you have some good points there. So I think maybe I was talking about when I was watching it on TV, it didn't seem like an overly conservative game plan to me. And then you brought up the point that we were typically starting pretty deep in our own territory. And as you said, in those situations, are you going to be trying something risky? Probably not, especially with a first-year QB, because that just tends to lend itself to more pick sixes. If you have, if we get sacked or something, all of a sudden we're punting out of our own end zone. So, I mean, to me, it, it seemed like the level of aggression was correct in those situations. And then on the defensive side of the ball, the situation that you had mentioned, that play that people were criticizing, that blitz, it was an obvious passing down. And I was reading about Marcus Freeman's press conference where he was talking about it and he essentially said they hadn't run a play like that all game al golden specifically asked him if he could do it and marcus freeman said you know what that's a great idea we haven't done anything like this all game this is a chance to maybe confuse stroud he won't be expecting it and ultimately what they said it came down to is they just didn't execute it well freeman seemed to think if they had tweaked a couple things if a couple players had done a couple things slightly more correctly on that play then they think it actually might have worked so he, he said that he didn't regret it and I think, yeah, I think in a situation like that, Ohio State was starting to move the ball a little bit better. If we'd gotten a sack there, you'd see how the narrative flips very quickly on something like that. People could have said, oh, that was that was a great play. It gave Ohio State a tough field goal, and their kicker had already missed the field goal. So who knows what would have happened in that situation? So I, I was actually I was fine with that as well. I do think one area where I thought maybe we were being a little bit conservative when we needed to try to push it a little bit was once Ohio State had taken the lead. We were still we were still sticking with the run game a little bit more than than I thought we probably needed to, especially since it wasn't being as effective in the second half. So that's that's my my one complaint there. I don't know if it would have changed the game at all. Again, as we said, our receivers were not particularly effective this game outside of a, a couple plays, but it felt like we were still playing and this is something Pete Sampson said. This is this is one element where I agreed with him. He said that we were still kind of playing not to lose the game even when we fell behind. 
And so I think in that instance, like once Ohio State had taken the lead, I think that that's fair. But by and large, beyond that, I, I was I was happy with the game plan. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So on that drive when we were down fourteen to ten, um, in the fourth quarter, the first play was a thirty-two yard pass completion to Braden Lindsay. The second play was a fourteen yard Chris Tyree run, and the third play was the deep ball to Matt Salerno where he got called for offensive pass interference. I I don't think that ball is catchable. I think they should have picked up that flag, but whatever. It's a nitpick. I mean, Salerno took the guy down, so whatever. But it was first and 25, fourth quarter, game's on the line, you're around midfield, and you got to go pick up uh, 25 yards. And we went run, run, run. Um, now on third and 18, I don't know if I want that. That's where like I'm kind of like on third and 18, I'm kind of glad Buckner's not forcing the issue. But on first and 25 and second and 18 with the game on the line to go run, run, I just don't like it. Um, so I, I agree with you there. The last point before we, we kind of move on from overall takeaways on the game that I thought Freeman did a really good job was player management. And so by that, I mean snap count balance. So one of the things we've talked about in the offseason a lot last year was guys like J.D. Bertrand would just never come off the field. And they were younger players, um, but, but you know, getting a ton of snaps. And by the third and fourth quarter, we looked absolutely gassed. And in this game, no player on defense um, other than Cam Hart played more than 51 snaps out of 71. Um, and that was J.D. Bertrand. But even J.D. Bertrand basically only played two-thirds of the plays. For comparison, in the Fiesta Bowl, J.D. Bertrand, Ramon Henderson, and Cam Hart each played over 85 snaps of the 97. So in the Fiesta Bowl, um, and really most of what we did all of last year, the plan was basically to play our starters in the back seven, like on 85 to 95% of plays, and they're just like not coming off the field. And then they got absolutely gassed. In this game, um, they were much fresher. The rotations, I thought, were a lot better. You know, Tariq Bracey was getting breathers. Clarence Lewis was getting breathers. All the linebackers were rotating in and out. And I thought it really showed. So, again, I get we got beat in the fourth quarter. But their two drives to win this game collectively took 24 plays. And on those two drives, um, we forced um, three third downs. So like we were hanging in there. They weren't going out and, you know, punching us and wearing us down and getting 10 yard chunk plays. Like they were getting four or five yards and they kept getting four or five yards and then they get one for 15. Like it's not like we were getting blown off the ball in the fourth quarter. They just put together two really great drives with a Heisman trophy contender. But I thought we were really fresh going into that fourth quarter and it showed and we couldn't get the last stop. We didn't get the blitz to get home. We you know, were kind of a play away from really shutting those drives down. But I didn't think we were gassed like we were in a lot of situations last year. So I thought roster management was something we were hoping Freeman would do a better job than Kelly in terms of just rotating players, keeping everyone fresh. And I thought that was like A+. Plus. And I think that will bode very well for this program um, going forward to really get more guys in, more development, fresher legs, have your marquee players, your starters in a better position to succeed in crunch time. So again, we've covered a bunch of different topics here on Freeman, but I think no turnovers, pretty clean game in the penalties. Maybe there's some judgment on play calling, but nothing egregious. The timeout management stunk. And then Roster management, player snap count, really good. It's like overall, first time head coach in a huge environment. This moment was not too big for Marcus Freeman. And I was really impressed with him as our, as our head coach in this game. Definitely. I, uh, yeah, I, I mentioned it before. I think Freeman handled himself as well as you could given the circumstances. Had us in a position where I actually thought that we, we're potentially going to pull away and win this game if we just executed a little better down the stretch. Obviously, we didn't, but obviously a very good sign. And on your point on the player balance, I like it. I think if you can do it, I think that that's the uh, ideal strategy. Even players like Jaden Mickey, Benjamin Morrison, who actually showed up pretty well in this game, 
They were heavily in the rotation. It just limits the wear and tear on your players, limits the risk of injury, and then especially if you have some younger guys in the rotation, it really just helps with the development. So if you can do it, assuming there's not a dramatic drop-off with some of the players, I think it's beneficial. Now, one other point, Ryan Day, so after the game, just framing how big a game this was, he was ecstatic. He essentially hinted that this was the type of game that he doesn't think that his team wins a year ago. Ohio State, they're known for being very talented. They haven't been known for being very tough. In this offseason, that was a big theme for Ohio State. They wanted to toughen up. They wanted to show that they could win these ugly games. And to give Notre Dame's defense credit, he said that we were pretty effective at making their Ohio State offense look ugly. And this is an offense that is about as high-powered as you could get, about as flashy, about as polished as you would expect. And we made them essentially sling it in the mud with us. They had to get their hands dirty. They had to play tough. We made Ohio State play our game, which is a credit to us. But as a credit to Ohio State... They played our game, and then they eventually learned how to play that game and beat us at our own game. Moving on to one side of the ball in more detail, I want to talk about the defense a little bit more now. So, Brett, do you want to kick us off what some of your thoughts are on on how our defense fared overall against Ohio State? For sure. So, first off, going into this game, we said C.J. Stroud's going to get his, and the formula for beating Ohio State is to limit the run game. We were kind of half right. C.J. Stroud did not get his yardage. In fact, being held at 223 yards was the second lowest yardage mark in his career. The the only team that held him to fewer yards was Tulsa in a blowout where, you know, C.J. Stroud, like, they just didn't pass the ball in the second half. So in a competitive game, this was by far his, you know, quote-unquote, worst statistical performance. Um, And for three quarters, Travion Henderson and Mayan Williams, the two Ohio State running backs, weren't getting anything. Now, in the fourth quarter, different story. They started getting it going. They had two long drives and, you know, wound up putting up 170 yards rushing between the two of them. But 170 yards rushing was, you know, average to below average for, for Ohio State last year. The difference was when they lost against Michigan and Oregon, they got less than 100 yards. So from a yardage output, Notre Dame was really solid in the run and incredibly solid um, in pass protection. And so I, I think overall, the only conclusion from this game about our defense, the only conclusion anyone can draw is that it was absolutely elite, um, particularly with who we were going up against. I know Jackson Smith and Jigba basically didn't play a majority of the game because of an injury, but CJ Stroud thrown to, you know, multiple other five-star receivers on the field, um, being held in check pretty much all night. When the defense also, you know, keep in mind our, we'll get to it, but our offense had the ball with the lead on six straight possessions and never had a drive longer than six plays. So our defense had to just keep going back out there, uh, you know, holding on to a lead in high leverage situations against arguably the best offense in the country, or at least from what we know preseason expect to be one of the best offenses in the country and absolutely held their own, really gave up, you know, 14 points until, I don't want to say the last touchdown was garbage time, but I mean, really by and large held their own for, for this entire game um, until the very, very end when, you know, CJ Stroud finally broke through, but extremely happy with them. Agree. And in terms of how we did it, it wasn't exactly, well, for me at least, it wasn't how I thought we would potentially get there. So we did limit the big plays, and I knew I did know going in that that would be a key ingredient because Ohio State's offense was known for being very explosive with C.J. Stroud and their their receivers. But we held their explosive rating to 1.0. For context, over the course of a season, a 1.0 explosiveness rating would have been dead last in college football. Obviously, as you get higher, if you have more plays that are 30-plus yards, you're going to climb up. So if, if you're doing better, then it'll be 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. 1.0 is... Again, especially for an offense of a Ohio State's caliber or, or any offense, that's 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 very low. So we pretty much shut them down. They were just nickel and diming every play, just little little pieces here and there. And early on, actually, we kept their success rate pretty low too. So I forgot exactly what the breakdown was. Overall, the thing is, like overall, their success rate for the whole game was forty nine percent. That's heavily tilted towards the end of the game. Watching the game, that's when Ohio State figured it out. That's when they were stringing together successful plays over and over again. Yeah, the, the success rate was about 35% in the first half, which again, offenses want to be in the mid to high 40s. So, and anything in the 30s is great for a defense. So they were mid 30s in the first half, which is 
elite for Notre Dame. In the second half, it was more like 55, 60%, which is elite for Ohio State. So it kind of flipped on us. Yeah. So in the first half, they didn't generate any explosiveness the entire game. But the difference in the second half, Brett, as you said, is that they were able to start stringing together a bunch of successful plays. And that's what happened. And they had these, that's what did us in is they had that long drive where they just marched downfield and scored a touchdown. So again, this, the 40, they had a 49% success rate for the whole game. That's heavily tilted by their success at the end of the game. But what kept us in was that we were able to keep their explosiveness down. Now, in terms of, what personnel groups did well in this game. I would say the secondary, that was one group, especially for this game, that we were a little bit more nervous about. And it's not because we think that they would be bad. It's just because we thought Ohio State's passing game would be so elite that they would have trouble hanging with them. And I think that's Ohio State's passing game is elite. But our secondary held up much better than I expected. And then our backers as well. So Maris Leofau, he played 51 snaps, zero missed tackles, only allowed one catch for four yards as a primary cover. Brand Joseph, All-American safety out of Northwestern. Someone that we had high hopes for, but he's had some highs, he's had some lows, so we didn't know exactly which version of Brandon Joseph we would be getting this season. So far, I would say based on this game, I'm feeling pretty good about how he's going to be playing this season. Wasn't even targeted in the passing game, not even once. Ohio State was just basically avoiding, avoiding him. Bracey targeted seven times, gave up six catches, but only 22 yards, no big plays. I think that's a general theme with the secondary is that they just were not giving up any big plays. Cam Hart had a couple. He got picked on a little bit early in the game, but then he kind of settled into it after that. But generally, the script did really well. And then, Brett, I'm going to kick it back over to you. The one area that was a little bit disappointing, which was surprising to me, was was the defensive line. That was a group that I thought would be able to just generate more havoc. I thought they would generally just be more effective this game. And they didn't really quite live up to to the hype that I would say most most of the media, most people around the program kind of expected just based on the the talent and then the depth that we have at the position. Yeah, and b- before that, I do want to double-click on some of the guys in the back seven, especially in the secondary. So we talk about pro football focus grades a lot. Um, they have some really good advanced metrics. So, for example, that's where we get all these, you know, coverage stats Mike just rattled off about Bracey. You know, they were six for seven against them, but only 22 yards. That, that's all tracked best uh, by, by pro football focus. And as a reminder, if you're graded in the 70s, that's a above average college football starter performance. If you're in the 80s, it's elite. It's kind of cuspy. You'll probably play in the NFL if you do that over and over and again. 60s is average and, you know, anything in the 50s is terrible. They do not adjust for opponent quality. So if you go up against Jackson Smith and Jacob and you get burned, or you go up against Marshall, wide receiver, and you get burned, they will be the same grade on that play. So it's not adjusted for the opponent you're playing. But despite that, I was really surprised by the grades that Pro Football Focus gave our defense, and, and I want to spend a minute on it. So no one in our secondary got a grade above a 68, and they had Cam Hart at a 50. Um no linebacker was above a 65. I don't understand those grades. Like when, when you rattle off the Maris Leofad plays 51 snaps in the middle of the field and doesn't have a missed tackle. Um, Jack Kaiser played um, over 40 snaps and only gave up two receptions in the passing game for 11 yards and only had one missed tackle. That grades out well. Even, you know, Cam Hart, again, so he got burned for the 31-year touchdown on their first scoring drive. And earlier on that draft drive, um, took a pass interference call to, to prevent a big play. So he had two bad plays basically on one drive. And in the rest of the game, he was targeted six times and just gave up two catches. So I get it. He had a bad drive, but I don't know how that grades out to 50. So pro football focus grades, we talk a lot about. There is an element, I think this is a, this is a great example for our listeners that we talk about analytics a lot. A lot of these analytics we talk about are still subjective. Um, and I take a lot of issue with, you know, how they were graded out on defense because even setting aside the fact that we, um, you know, got beat quite a, we wound up losing the game. Giving up 21 points against any team is a good defensive performance in college football. Um, like that's a very good, like if you only give up 20 points a game in college football, you're going to do really, really well as a team. And so despite that, um, anyone who's into pro football focus grades, I would just encourage you to just not even look at the defensive grades in this game because the stats, the actual stats that we saw from Tariq Bracey and Clarence Lewis and Brandon Joseph and Cam Hart and pretty much all of the linebackers tell you these guys were locked in 
not giving up yardage, maybe not creating big havoc, but they weren't giving up yardage. They weren't giving up, um, you know, really anything in this game. They just weren't giving up an inch um, and, and thought they graded out much better than what maybe pro football focus said. And Mike, I think a lot of the stats you, you referenced go through that. Um, so your next question about havoc. Yeah, I think the lack of havoc was pretty glaring. Um, we had a 6% havoc rate. And again, a, a havoc play is where you basically either deflect the pass, get a turnover, or create a tackle for loss, either a sack or a tackle behind the line of scrimmage. A defense wants a havoc rate in the mid to high teens. So like 15 to 20% is really, really good. We were 6%. Um, so while they weren't getting big plays on us, a big reason why they had a high success rate is because on a lot of plays, they were getting four or five yards instead of zero. We, we just weren't forcing negative plays. And that's what really showed up on their two scoring drives in the second half. And again, we thought defensive line was going to be the strength strength of our defense. And in this game, it wasn't. In this game, the secondary was by far the strength of our defense, probably right there with linebackers. But Foskey and the Adam Alola brothers and Riley Mills, like they just didn't get home. Um, they just didn't create pressures. You know, in this game, um, I'm looking up Isaiah Foskey's stat line, zero hurries um, in the entire game. Like that just can't happen for a guy who's you know trying to be an All American and had ten sacks last year. Um, you know Riley Mills had a couple of hur- hurries, but other than that, we just weren't creating pressure. Um, I didn't get a good view if that's just because we weren't blitzing or you know weren't bringing exotic looks looks, and you know we were just trying to keep them in front of us and we're doing a really good job of that. You know maybe we just conceded not bringing pressure on C.J. Stroud, but the front four was not disruptive in this game. Um, really starts with Isaiah Foskey and, and everyone else kind of follows from there, but no one really jumped off the page as, wow, that guy was really disruptive and getting in the backfield. No one was getting in the backfield. Yep. I read after the game that Ohio State, originally they had planned to use a tight end to help support blocking Foskey. And then quickly as the game unfolded, they realized that they could handle him one-on-one with with the tackle basically. And so that actually made things a little bit easier for them. But I think that just speaks to, uh, you know, how disappointing our defensive line this game was. Certainly we mentioned we kept the explosiveness down. We were very effective at doing that. And one trade-off, we've talked about trade-offs between how you can win games. And one trade-off generally is if you're not going to be as aggressive, if you're not going to do as many blitzes, that's one way that you keep the explosiveness down. And I think that's kind of what we did here a little bit. But I do think we thought our defensive line should have been good enough to generate pressure on their own, maybe without exotic blitzes, without sending extra men down, and we were not able to do that at all. So basically, if I'm just bringing this all together, what we did is we were able to keep the explosiveness down quite a bit. We did not generate much havoc. And then as the game went on, we allowed a lot of successful plays to Ohio State. So what kept us in the game is that we just, again, we just completely prevented Ohio State from just getting these big chunky plays, and we essentially forced them to just kind of nickel and dime, as I said before, their way down the field. And it worked pretty well at first. And then they essentially got increasingly successful. They kind of figured out our defense a little bit more. Our, de- our defensive line wore down a bit. They were able to start running the ball on us a little bit more effectively. C.J. Stroud just made some pretty ridiculous plays at, at, at different points in time as the game progressed. And that's what it was. If we had generated a little bit more havoc, maybe this game would have looked a little bit different. But that's essentially what it is. Now, flipping the script to offense... The story of our offense is in many ways actually kind of the opposite of what our defense did. So our offense hung in this game pretty much entirely on explosiveness. We also gave up a lot of havoc, and then our success rate was low. So pretty much the opposite of what our defense did is what the story of our offense was. We just had a, a number of big plays, especially early on, that, that were able, we were able to generate some points on. I think one other thing I want to mention before I, I hand it back over to you, Brett, is, is uh, Buckner. So I thought Buckner started out really well. And overall, I think I was I was pleased with him. It's That's a really tough environment for a first-year QB. Started out really hot, 8 for 8. I had some big plays, as I mentioned, some explosive plays. But then as the game went on, no one was really getting open. It seems like our receivers were not particularly effective at generating space. And even even when we had some of these big plays, it didn't really feel like we had created that much separation. Salerno had that one catch. That was just a ridiculous play. That was all him, basically. But I think he, he started out well. I think one key is that he didn't turn it over, and then he didn't take sacks. And 
those are those are two big elements. Those are two ways to just kill drives. Those are two ways to just completely flip the game quickly as if your QB is is turning the ball over and he's, if he's taking sacks. His, his grade was 64 in pro football focus grade. Again, as, as you mentioned, Brett, it doesn't adjust for your competition. So a 64 against Ohio State for your first start ever at the horseshoe, that that to me, that that's fine. I think there were some encouraging signs, like I said at the beginning. I think as the game went on, I forgot what the exact stat line was. I think he finished the game 2 for 10 or something like that. So yeah, he, he started was, 8 for 8 and finished 2 for 10. Two for ten. So he struggled a bit down the line. Again, some of that's on our receivers. But I think overall, I think Buckner, he showed me enough to think that he could develop into a good player. Again, he didn't make any bad decisions. He made some nice throws, some nice plays. Again, in a really tough environment, he had an okay grade. And I think it's something that he it's not it's not a point in time right now where I would say he's he's here. He's a really good player right now, but it's enough for me to say I think that he could develop into a good player. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if we'll get to wide receivers in a second. I think any criticism of Tyler Buckner in this game is probably the fact that he finished two for 10 and couldn't keep it going. But if you go back and watch the film, if you look at any of these advanced stats, no one was open. And I mean, no one was open. We were getting zero separation, um, on our pass routes. And I don't know if that's on play calling. I don't know if that's on just wide receivers being inexperienced, like not having enough depth. So wide receiver is probably the one position where we couldn't rotate a lot of players because we only have five scholarship wide receivers. And Matt Salerno, our walk-on, you know, arguably is one of the better wide receivers on his 10 to 15 snaps. But I thought Buckner, you know, in that environment with receivers not getting open would have been really easy to start forcing the ball. And he did not start forcing the ball. Like if someone was covered... He threw it to the only place where our guy had a chance to catch it, even if it was low probability, but he was not throwing it in double coverage. He was not making mistakes. Um, so I, I was really happy with how he played. I think we're going to just need to see more production from the entire offense, including him going forward. Um, but I, I was really happy with Tyler Buckner. Going back to what you said on explosiveness, so the explosiveness metric we look at is this explosive rating um, by collegefootball.com. And 1.4 is going to be top 10 if you can do that for an entire year. 1.0 is going to be bottom 10 in the country. And 1.2 is kind of average. So 1 to 1.4 is kind of the index for this rating. Um, on the one hand, our defense allowed an explosiveness of 1.0. So that just highlights we gave up no big plays. On our offense, we had an explosiveness of 1.4. So again, that's really elite. Um, I think we had a 54-yarder, a 34-yarder. I think we had four or five plays over 20, 25 yards. Um, again, to your point though, that was the entire night. And to me, that really then shifts to why could we not get any more consistency in our offense? And the area I'm most focused on is our offensive line. Um, there's mixed data here. Um, I'm also going to say this is an area where I think pro football focus maybe missed it a little bit. So in pass protection, Pro Football Focus had our, our offensive line pretty bad. Like they had Josh Lugg at 77 and no one else above a 61. But um, there's different stats on this. So Greg Fleming, a, a Notre Dame beat writer, said something like there were 15 times Tyler Buckner was under pressure. But according to Pro Football Focus, there were only four times Tyler Buckner was under pressure. And so that means, for example, that Blake Fisher gave up one pressure on 24 pass blocking plays. That's a 96% pass blocking rate. That was the same rate for Zeke Carell. Um, and that was the same rate for Andrew Kristoffich. And they all graded out in the 50s and 60s on, on pass blocking. If you're only giving up one or two pressures in a game, um, if you sustain that over a season, that's about where Jarrett Patterson was last year, who we consider to be our best offensive player. So I actually thought they did a pretty good job in pass protection I don't quite get the grades. I don't quite get how you get graded poorly when the metric you're being graded on is pressures allowed and pro football focus said we weren't giving up pressure. So I don't get that. I thought in pass protection, we were fine. The big issue was in the run game. Um, across the board, we were terrible at the offensive line in the run game. And I get that Ohio State, it looked like the entire time was putting seven, eight guys in the box and just daring Tyler Buckner and our wide receivers to beat him, and we beat him a few times, just not enough. So I thought they were Ohio State schemed to take away our run, 
Um, but our offensive line just didn't come up there. Um, a metric we like to talk about is line yards, which measures the yardage that the offensive line generates in a push, effectively the yards that a uh, running back makes it before first contact. You'll want that number to be in the low threes. We were 2.8. That would have ranked around 100th in the country last year. In fact, that's about where we were in September last year when everyone wanted Jeff Quinn to get fired as the offensive line coach because we weren't generating enough push against Wisconsin and Cincinnati. Well, this game looked like that. This game looked like we just were not generating any consistent push up front. And so I know Harry Heastan's a great coach. I know the Notre Dame fan base loves him. In this game, the offensive line did not show up. And that was surprising. I thought that was going to be our best unit. I, I was praising this team as the best offensive line in the country in our preseason show. And that hot take has not aged well because at least in this game, wasn't there. Yeah. I I was surprised I was surprised with the line on both sides of the ball. Going into the season, you kept hearing about how you had these really elite battles between our offensive line and our defensive line. And I think the pieces are there for both units to be really good, but now part of me is wondering, okay, hey, actually maybe maybe neither unit is as good as we were thinking that they would be. Hopefully that's not the case, but Part of me is getting a little worried that it was just a lot of hype. Granted, you have to say Jarrett Patterson, who is potentially our best offensive lineman. He is our best offensive lineman. He was out for this game. That impacts things quite a bit. His replacement, Kristovich, didn't play particularly well. And then I think having Patterson's leadership next to a next to Zeke Carell, who doesn't have a ton of experience as a center, at least starting as a center, I think that that would have helped a little bit because Carell also struggled quite a bit too. So I think... I think our pass protection, as you said, Brett, there's some mixed data on it. There's some data out there that suggests that maybe we didn't do that well. I think it also helps that we have a mobile QB this time. If Jack Cohn, if Jack Cohn was out there, then maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of the struggles would have been a little bit more noticeable, but we didn't really take many sacks. So I, I would say from the pass protection side of things, I don't know. For me, it was kind of jury still out on it. There wasn't anything particularly obvious to me about a struggling, but the run game is where is where we, we definitely struggled. And I, I think we should get better at that as the season goes on. He stand has a track record of developing guys. We'll get Patterson back, and hopefully that should shore things up. But um, overall, yeah, disappointing performance from the from the offense. Now, another point that we've touched on are the wide receivers, or just our receiving core in general. I'm going to lump tight ends in here. I thought Mayor, Mayor was okay. He had a pro football focus grade of 65. That's I mean, that's pretty average, honestly. I think Ohio State was trying to limit his impact and shut him down. But... The receivers, we had some explosive plays, as we, we mentioned a few of them before. Our highest grade receiver was Matt Salerno at 81, but he was only in for eight snaps, so his impact is pretty limited. By and large, they just, as I said before, they weren't getting separation. When they were open, they did pretty well. Um, and there were a few times when they didn't have separation and they were able to pull in a crazy catch or a really challenging catch. But beyond that, there wasn't a whole lot of production there. And I think that's essentially what Ohio State assumed. They assumed that they were going to try to focus on shutting down a run and make our receivers beat us. And they did, as you said, Brett, they did a few times, but certainly not enough for us to, to win the game. Yeah, I thought the most important stat in this game that describes why Notre Dame lost is the fact that none of our wide receivers had more than one catch. And they all had one big catch, but none of them had more than one catch. And so, you know, Braden Lindsay has been talked about as having this great offseason and maybe kind of being the next Kevin Austin that puts it all together as a senior. I didn't see that. Um, Lorenzo Styles and Jaden Thomas, you know, stepping up as sophomores and, you know, hopefully becoming really big players. I didn't see either of those guys being a go-to option. And so I get it. Ohio State's probably the second best defense we'll play all year um, behind Clemson. But if you think about what Notre Dame needs to do to go 11-1, and one, it's going to be beating Clemson, who's a way better defense than this. And so, um, you know, we can talk about high-level reactions for going forward, but this wide receiver room is right now the weakness on this team. There's guys in the room that can do it. I have a lot of confidence in Styles and Thomas um, and and Colsey uh, uh, and um, uh, Braden Lindsay, but in the biggest game here to start the year, um, didn't see it and gonna need to see some improvement. Okay, so 
Taking a step back, looking at this game, big picture, I'm going to dive into how I'm feeling about this game overall. So first things first, Marcus Freeman, he said this in his post-game press conference, no, no moral victories. We want to win. Uh, however, I do think as a fan, as someone who's been following the program, I do think this is, this is a moral victory, especially given the circumstances of the game. I think it showed, we talked about some of this a little bit earlier, but I think going in, there was a lot of uncertainty about how we would perform in a big game environment like this with a first year head coach, brand new QB. And I think we, we showed pretty well. So I think overall, in terms of what this means for my expectations moving forward, Brett and I, we predicted 10 and 2 or 9 and 3. I think I predicted 10 and 2, Brett, and you predicted 9 and 3. Based on those preseason predictions, I hinted at this a little bit earlier in the show, but I think I feel, I feel better about the floor for this team. I feel like our defense is going to be really good. They showed as much against Ohio State. I think that they are potentially top five, top 10. And I think when you have a unit that that's good, that does give you a certain floor. So I think the, the scenarios where people were saying we go seven and, seven and five, eight and four, that seems less likely to me. Now, flipping to the other side of the ball, the offense was, was shakier than expected. And I think because of that, I don't feel as good about us potentially running the table from here on out. Clemson in particular, that's going to be really tough. We know that Clemson is going to have an elite defense. And knowing that and knowing that our offense is, our offense has, has some strides to make before we improve to a level to where we can really compete at that top level. I'm just envisioning that being a game where sure our defense holds up, but we're just not going to be able to put up a whole lot of points on them. My takeaway is, our floor is higher and our ceiling maybe is not, I think 11 and one is probably going to be tougher and even, or even 10 and two. I think, I think 10 and two is possible, but I think we're going to need some strides at offense in order to hit some of these more optimistic scenarios. I'm not positive we're going to get there. There's some evidence that we could, I think again, Jarrett Patterson coming back. I think the line's going to get better as the season goes on. I think Buckner is someone who hopefully is going to improve quite a bit as the year goes on, but there's still a lot of uncertainty on the offensive side of the ball, especially with the receivers. The receiver situation is that's not something that's going to improve dramatically this year. We'll have some players develop, but the depth situation is the depth situation. We don't have a ton of new players coming in. I feel better that we're not going to have a season where we fall on our face. I feel like, I feel pretty good that we're going to have a pretty good season, but I feel less certain that we could have a, just a really, really nice run that gets us, gets us into a playoff spot. Yeah. I think I generally agree with most of that, just ticking through the schedule. So Clemson, I think you're spot on. Um, if Clemson's defense is going to be better than Ohio State, a Notre Dame fan needs to believe that our wide receivers will be like a step change improvement between now and November 5th. Now that is two months away as of time of recording this podcast. So that's possible, but you really need to believe that the wide receiver room gets a lot better or it's hard to say we're going to score more than 10 points. But we do have a top five defense. And I think a top five defense can probably shut down Clemson's offense, maybe, or at least hold them in check better than we held CJ Stroud in check. And so I actually feel better about the Clemson game. I thought that was going to be a loss when we did our schedule preview in the second episode of the season for, for Garish Talk. I feel like I actually think that's more of a 50-50 game now because what I was worried about was, okay, if Clemson's defense shuts down our offense, can we shut down their offense? The sky is the limit for Notre Dame's defense. We are staring at a top five defense if they can replicate this success at all that they had against Ohio State. Um, so that I feel good about. Then looking at the rest of the schedule, UNC has really struggled in two games. They, they beat FAMU easily, but then FAMU turned around and lost by 50 to another FCS team and UNC struggled against them for about the first quarter and a half. And then UNC barely survived and got really lucky against App State on a couple of two-point conversion attempts that failed for App State. So I feel a lot better about UNC as sort of that maybe third or fourth hardest game being easier. USC, we don't know anything yet. Haven't really seen them play a meaningful game. And then BYU looked really good against South Florida. They they went in as 11-point favorites and won by 29 and absolutely blew out South Florida. And I'm not sitting here saying South Florida is a good measuring stick, but what I do know is on an 11-point spread, BYU won by 29. And so I I juxtapose that with if Marcus Freeman was shakier in this game, 
Um, if it felt like the moment was too big or you felt like there were kind of first-year coach mistakes, maybe outside of the timeouts, I'd start feeling worse about games like BYU and UNC and USC. But, man, like that team was prepared for the moment. And if we do that 11 more times this year, I'm actually, I'm going to go ahead and move my prediction from nine and three to 10 and two. And I don't know if that's us beating Clemson or if that means us, you know, winning all the games we should win and not slipping up somewhere else against the BYU or USC. So we'll wrap this up. I'm actually more solidly focused on 10 and two. I don't know if I feel better about 11 and one, but I'm actually moving off of my nine and three prediction and think that this team just looks really solid on the defensive side of the football and really locked in with preparation um, that I I think they're going to take care of business. The downside is I don't think we're going to have another data point until UNC, um, and, th- and that'll be our second road game of the year here in three weeks. But I think Marshall and Cal, we, we should be you know two to three score favorites in both games. Um, and so I think the next time we'll really get a good litmus test is against UNC in three weeks. But I'm feeling really good going into these last 11 games after really hanging with one of the best teams in the country. So that, let's uh, turn to the Marshall game. As I'll tell them in our team today, this hopefully is the the floor. This is the foundation of what we have to build off of. And, uh, again, I'm proud of the performance that they they, uh they showed on Saturday and look forward for building from here. And so um, as we move forward into Marshall, um, you know, I'm excited really, you know, for my first – home game as a head coach here at Notre Dame Stadium and um, it's something you dream about and ever since you I've been named head coach I'm looking forward to this moment all right the Marshall thundering herd come to Notre Dame Stadium for the home opener in the Marcus Freeman era Freeman also looking still for his first win as a head coach starting 0-2 in two top 10 matchups um, we're going to keep this one quick Notre Dame uh, has opened as a heavy heavy favorite in this game um, and should be a big mismatch, so we, we won't spend too much time on it. But a quick preview to the state of the Marshall program. Their head coach, Doc Holliday, was not offered a contract extension after 11 years at the program, so he's out. And Grant Wells, who really uh, emerged as one of the best quarterbacks in the MAC last year, the MAC conference, has transferred to Virginia Tech, where he started uh, in their opener in a loss, actually, to Old Dominion. So Virginia Tech still a bit of a miss, mess. But for Marshall, losing their coach, their quarterback, had some guys transferring out. This is a program that last year looked like a really fun MAC team. Um, started off the season really well and on a good trajectory. Sputtered down the stretch, lose their coach, lose their quarterback, and really just not in a great place heading into this season. Yeah, I, th- I think you hit on it. So Marshall, my, my impression of them last year is that they were a good G5 program. They wouldn't necessarily be a good P5 program, but there, there's been a lot of turmoil. They've had some key personnel leave with the quarterback. You mentioned the coach. Now, moving on to what is the formula for them to make this game close. They need to be two-dimensional. So they're, they're running back Ali. He, he's a dynamic runner, but it looks like their offense— I would be surprised if their offensive line was able to hold up against our defensive line. As we mentioned, our defensive line didn't look as good as we expected against Ohio State. But that's a completely different situation going up against the Ohio State offensive line versus the Marshall offensive line. So I think I think Notre Dame, I think we should be able to dis- be disruptive. I think we should bottle up the run game. And I think that uh, Marshall's offensive line will, will probably have some difficulty against us. As we mentioned, their quarterback last year transferred to Virginia Tech. So it kind of remains to be seen what they're going to be able to do there. They're going to need the pass game to step up to create some balance. They have a receiver gamage. He's someone who who could potentially step up and make some plays. But overall, I would say it remains to be seen what they're going to be able to do on offense. Yeah, their starting quarterback, Henry Columbi, um, is a former Texas Tech player who transferred to Utah State and now transferred again to Marshall. But he was kind of like a preferred walk-on at Texas Tech. I think he's technically a scholarship player, but he was the number 1,246 recruit in his class. So Henry Columbia, you know, has some power five experience by way of being at Texas Tech, but not a marquee recruit that you think is going to carry this program. And so, you know, I, but I agree that for Marshall to be competitive, if they do get Columbia rolling in the passing game, um, they do have a dynamic running back, as you mentioned, in Ali. So they're going to need to be two-dimensional to beat Notre Dame. 
Um, if Columbia's not solid and, and we can put seven, eight guys in the box and just bottle up their run game, I don't think Marshall stands a chance. Um, flipping to just another topic, Marshall's biggest weakness. So where should Notre Dame dominate this game? It's Marshall's run defense. Um, in fact, their pass rush last year graded out at 17th on pro football focus, but their run defense was only 51st and they lose their two starting defensive tackles from a year ago. So, you know, in general, they've got a lot to fill in on the defensive line at linebacker. They're start, they're returning all of their starters from last year, um, including Eli Neal, who was a linebacker that led the team with seven sacks. But in general, none of their defensive players really stepped up and graded out well in the run game. And so that's, you know, as a team, their biggest weakness. A really good litmus test for Notre Dame, by the way. We, we just talked about in the Ohio State game how our offensive line really struggled to set the line in, in the run game. So the thing I'm most focused on is Notre Dame should absolutely dominate running the ball in this game. Our line yard should absolutely be three and a half. And it was 2.8 against Ohio State. So the area where I'm looking for the most is now with a favorable matchup, does our offensive line dominate? That's exactly what I'm looking for, too. I think it's just certain areas where we didn't look as great against Ohio State. If it pops up again in Marshall, then that means it's actually a really big issue. If we look pretty good in those areas, then to me that says, okay, we are playing Ohio State, one of the most elite programs in the country. So... That makes me feel a little bit better about those teams. It's 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 maybe not as big an issue as you think. It's more just you're going up against an extremely talented team. So you mentioned the line yards. Again, hopefully Patterson is back for this game. We don't know for sure. He's still technically questionable. you got to think there's a better chance of him playing in this game. However, this isn't a marquee opponent. So if they want to be careful with him, I could see them resting him a little bit more just to, just to be more on the safe side. Either way, I definitely want to see more line yards, more push from the offensive line, cleaner pass protection from our receivers, You'd think against Marshall, hopefully we can generate a little bit more separation. And then moving to the other side of the ball, I'd like to see our, our defensive line be a bit more disruptive, get a little bit more pressure without blitzes. Hopefully they can bottle up the run game and generate some some uh, some plays for a loss. So you want to see all that. And then on top of that, you also want to see the areas that, that held up pretty well against Ohio State continue to do so against Marshall. So hopefully our secondary and our linebackers continue to look good. I'd also like to see Buckner... Again, this is a more, it should be a more favorable situation for him. So hopefully we're able to throw the ball with him a little bit more and, and see how he does against the opponent like Marshall, a team that's not as loaded as Ohio State. And so those are kind of, those will kind of be the key things that I'm looking for. And again, it's not a elite, elite opponent, but it can still give you some idea of how some of these, these position groups may be developing and how, how they look when they're not going up against a team full of five stars. For sure. So wrapping up this segment on the Marshall game, let's get into score predictions. Uh, SP plus implies that Notre Dame should be about a 24 point favorite at home. The ESPN FPI predictor gives Notre Dame an 89% chance to win. Um, so clearly Notre Dame heavy favorites going into this one. Las Vegas opened at about a 17 point line, 17 and a half. Um, I actually was lucky enough to grab a bet, um, when the line was at 17 and a half. And then I tweeted that it was, you know, way too low relative to what the SP plus says. And so lo and behold, you know, all of Twitterverse started betting along with us. I probably don't think we influenced the market, but the line has moved from 17 and a half up to 20. So still a bit of a gap between, um, SP plus here, second game in a row where Vegas relative to the advanced metrics, are um, disrespecting Notre Dame a little bit. So, Mike, with SP Plus a 24-point advantage, Las Vegas a 20-point advantage, what do you got for a score prediction? Yeah, so I think we're going to look better in this. I mean, we looked. I think we looked good, good against Ohio State, given the circumstances. I think some of these position groups that looked weaker against Ohio State are going to look a lot better here. I think our offensive line is going to be healthier and, and look much better in this situation. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking we have a big statement at home. I think... We put up some points. I think we we're able to bully them um, in the trenches. I think Buckner looks pretty good. So I'm leaning towards a 42-15 Notre Dame win here. So pretty big win. Not if you're if you're looking at the SP plus, it's not it's not out of line, not too far out of line of that. If you're looking at the Vegas spread, it's a bit higher than that. But I think based on the advanced stats, it's a, a little bit more optimistic than that, but nothing too aggressive. Yeah. So. I hate games when Notre Dame is a big favorite. Um, 
I think they're just really hard to predict. Um, now I went and bet on this one because I thought at 17 points it was a steal. So I'm about to make a prediction, but I don't touch this thing at 20 points. Um, I think that's just a big number. Um, I, I wouldn't bet either way on it. Um, the over-under is 50, and I think Notre Dame is – there's two scenarios here. Coming off of a big physical Ohio State game that's a big emotional letdown, you're worried about like a slow start. I don't get that vibe with Marcus Freeman right now. Like He seemed laser-focused after the game. The team seemed in really good spirits about how they played. And so I know we say there's no moral victories – I think if you're in this locker room, you're probably feeling a lot better after this game um, than you have after, you know, losses to Clemson or Alabama or Georgia in the past. Like, they got to be feeling pretty good that, okay, we went toe-to-toe. And so I think you're going to see a really locked-in team, but it might be a bit of a slower start getting this game going. Um, so the over-under is 50. Um, and Notre Dame's a 20-point favorite, which implies it should be about a 35-15 to game. I got this 35-10. to um, so I, I don't know if we're going to go and run up the score with, you know, 40 plus points, but I think we're going to come out locked in, ready to go control both sides of the line of scrimmage. So I've got Notre Dame covering, um, closer to the SP plus line, but maybe in a little bit lower scoring. So if the over under is 50, my prediction at 35, 10 is 45 total points. So I'm taking the under with Notre Dame to cover. I don't feel great about hitting that big of a number, but Mike, I think like you just feel really good about this matchup. I'm going to trust SB plus on this one and say that Notre Dame covers. Looks like we're in agreement. We, and then I'm, I'm just going to quickly reference the Ohio state game. I think we both picked 14 point losses in that one. And so we were actually pretty close on our prediction there. So yeah, we beat the spread. We did. Uh, so that wraps up this episode. Garish. Garish. <laughs>